1: Hey, welcome to the show. I have some exciting news, but I won't be telling it until uh, later today. It's actually going to be in the next hour of the show. Sorry, but I just, uh, that's what we call a cliffhanger. Let me just put it this way. The uh, the reach of this program is about to expand in a big way. And I'm excited because it's, it's not just for me, but for a lot of other voices out there that are diligently trying to speak the truth and and to reach people with a message that, uh, well, let's just say the message that the hosts feel uh, called to speak. We live in very interesting times, but I, I have to say, there's an element of excitement when you wake up to the uh, to the reality that there may be something that I'm supposed to do. There there may be a, you know a a mission that that is mine and mine alone, and I'm supposed to step up and fulfill it. And I have uh, the privilege of of rubbing shoulders with a lot of people who operate under that very thought. And and the, here's the cool thing. Their messages are not in lockstep. They're not the same. It's not like everybody's just chanting in unison, <laughs> which apparently to some people is, you know, that's how we celebrate diversity is we, we chant in unison. No, no. But uh, But they are speaking truth, and they're doing it to the best of their ability, and I'm excited to be a part of it, and I have more information coming up, but it will be in the next hour of the show so sorry to to leave you hanging there i do have some fun stuff to talk about this hour we're going to talk about edward snowden is he a hero is he a traitor i'll tell you i you know i don't put a lot of stock in any political figure and and that includes donald trump i'm sorry i'm not trying to offend anybody but i don't see him as being the solution to a lot of our problems and in fact i i have to say some people see him as a very strong impediment to the goals of, you know, the bipartisan establishment that has consolidated its control over the political machine over many generations. And, you know, we refer to it by different names, the establishment, the deep state. Those who uh, are offended by such things are usually offended that, hey, you noticed something you weren't supposed to. But it's a real thing. There, There are those who... You don't remain in power regardless of whether this office, you know, someone, someone is elected or someone is, is voted out. There's, there's a definite uh, permanency to the bureaucracy. And it seems like the, the needle always goes in the direction of less freedom, more government, more control over your life. So I can understand some people would look at uh, anything that threatens that as, as a bad thing. And while I'm not going to pretend that uh, Trump has saved us from all of that, he was at least applying some pretty good friction. Probably more so than any other president within my lifetime, even including Ronald Reagan, who I really loved as a president. I think one of the best things that Trump could do on his way out of office is to pardon some of the individuals unjustly persecuted by the U.S. government over the past few years. Now, this would include people like... Julian Assange which by the way it's in the the rumor is out there that the Trump is going to pardon Julian Assange and I think that's actually a good idea. He's the founder of WikiLeaks, Assange's. He uh is the one who who broke the uh, story of uh, US military personnel engaging in wanton killing of unarmed individuals in Iraq back in 2007. I know, that's a very un-American thing to point out. How dare you point this out? But, hey, when you unleash the, the dogs of war, those dogs sometimes turn into a wolf pack. And this was video evidence from the gun cameras of the very dogs who were doing the killing. So Assange should, should be pardoned. Uh, while he's at it, uh, the, Ross Ulbricht, the founder of Silk Road, should be pardoned. Now, if you don't know much about it, you can go online, look up Silk Road. Paul Rosenberg, I think, actually has had one of the better takes on this in that uh, what, what Ross Ulbricht invented was a way for people to contact one another, to contract with one another online. And yes, there were some people who apparently tried to use it for, you know, the, the trafficking of drugs. Um, the, the claim is that there was someone who tried to set up a, a contract, a hitman. On someone else via Silk Road. Ulbricht never engaged in any of this. He simply created the the system that some people chose to use for a nefarious purpose. But he's serving multiple lifetime sentences right now. And uh, if you if you learn a little bit about his story, I actually had the chance, along with uh, Connor Boyack, a couple of years ago, to interview Ross Olbricht's mother. And it's pretty clear there's there's some serious injustice taking place here. And then finally, Edward Snowden, the guy who blew the whistle on how our own government is treating all of us as potential terrorists and potential enemies of the state by spying on us, by vacuuming up every bit of digital information it can on us, our phone calls, our emails, where we surf on the web, uh, listening to our calls, Yeah, You know, the NSA center, by the way, one of the big data centers that that does all this gobbling up of this information is less than 10 miles from where I sit. Hi, guys. Hope you're enjoying the show today. Anyway, Snowden blew the whistle on this. This was clear back seven years ago. And the question that is on a lot of people's minds, well, is he a hero or is he a traitor for blowing the whistle? And it's funny because there, there are, you know, law and order conservatives who are like, well, he gave our enemies information. And, and they're very concerned about those enemies. China, Russia, why did he go to China first? Why did he end up in Russia? Well, he was exiled by our government, which withdrew his passport and essentially stranded him there. So as, let's not pretend he willingly ran there because, hey, they were offering, you know, the best perks in return for whatever he could offer. And while the uh, the establishment tries to keep us focused on those enemies over there, I'll tell you the favor that Edward Snowden did for us was he pointed out that our enemy is the state. It's our own government to the extent that it's sitting there turning its purpose on its head and spying on us and cataloging us and vacuuming up all this information and storing it just in case the day comes that it needs to retroactively build a case against each and every one of us. Look, absent uh, some kind of articulable suspicion, no, absent probable cause that you are involved in a crime or I'm involved in a crime, it's none of the government's business. Oh, but they're just trying to protect us, Brian. There's terrible people out there. I understand. And some of those terrible people Wear suits and work in nice air conditioned U.S. government offices. Some of those people are government property. But they're doing evil things. They are perverting the very purpose for which this government was created, which is to protect our inalienable God-given rights. Snowden called them out on this. And so there are those who think, well, he needs to he needs to, you know, be, you know, hanged at dawn. No, I don't think that's the case at all. And it would make me extremely happy to see Trump pardon Edward Snowden. It's funny. I know some friends who say, well, maybe he just needs to come home and face a fair trial. Yeah, because he's going to get a fair trial in the federal system. (laughs) Right. Um, I'm sure they'll have some very comfortable accommodations while he awaits trial, you know, in Guantanamo. Pardon him. Take that piece off the chessboard for the deep state he did us a favor. Okay, that's my opinion. You do not have to agree, but that's that's where I'm coming from. So, by the way, John Stossel has done an excellent article on Edward Snowden, hero or traitor. And I think this is pretty balanced. Although he does start out by saying President Trump should pardon Edward Snowden. Some people will say, "Who?" He goes, I know, it's embarrassing. Assange, Manning, Snowden, who did what? He says, I got them confused before I researched this topic because he says national security isn't my beat. I finally educated myself this month because I got a chance to interview Snowden, the CIA NSA employee who told the world that our government spied on us but lied to Congress about it. Now Snowden hides from the American authorities. Apparently he talked with John Stossel via Zoom. Fourteen years ago, when Snowden worked for the CIA and then the NSA, he signed agreements saying he would not talk about what he did. And so he was confronted by, by John Stossel. Why did you break your promise? His answer was, what changed me was the realization that our government what our government actually does was very different than the public representation of it. That's because the NSA's mass surveillance program was meant to find foreign terrorists. And when congressmen asked NSA officials if, without warrants, they collected data on American citizens, they lied and they said no. And Edward Snowden said, this was a breathtaking sweep of intentional knowing public deception. We're capturing everything that your family is doing online and they lied. They lied about it. Justify that for me, if you would. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. Please stay with us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I do want to point out that our show is brought to you in part today by AltaBank. That would be my friend John Staples, who is a mortgage lender extraordinaire. Very good news for anybody within the sound of my voice in my home state of Utah, because uh, that's where AltaBank is based, and that's where John is based. If you want to contact him, just simply go to the show notes. Down at the bottom of the page, there's a link for my sponsors, and it will take you directly to John. Now, I'm talking about uh, Edward Snowden. In particular, an interview that John Stossel did with him. And Stossel admits, yeah, he wasn't all that keyed into national security, but after interviewing Snowden, his take is Trump needs to pardon this guy. And it's not like he sat there and lobbed, you know, Joe Biden style softball questions like our press has been doing to the president elect. He was asking him real questions, one of which, why did you break your promise? And, lie, and and why did you share things that you signed agreements with the NSA and the CIA that you would not talk about? And Snowden says, it was because I realized they're, what they're doing is actually very different than what they're telling the public. And, and NSA officials were lying to Congress about whether they collected data on Americans. Now, something you have to understand is the, the first resort wasn't, well, I'm going to take this public and, you know, make sure that everybody knows. He tried to solve it through so-called correct channels, but was stonewalled at every turn. In fact, uh, in fact Stossel says, I asked Snowden if his co-workers had qualms. And he said, in private, some said, well, this is crazy. I'm not sure this is legal, but you know what happens to people who talk about this? Well, what does happen? Nothing terrible, said President Barack Obama, who claimed Snowden could have revealed the government's law breaking legally. There were other avenues available, Obama told reporters. But Snowden told John Stossel what Obama said was incorrect. Government officials protect themselves by discrediting those who reveal inconvenient truths. Previous whistleblowers lost their jobs. Some were shocked to be the subject of Dawn raids by federal police with drawn guns. So he says, I understand why Snowden feared proper channels. So instead, he ended up taking the documents to journalists and the world learned the truth. By the way, if you haven't seen Citizen Four, I would strongly recommend it. It's a documentary and it, uh, it, it's, it's the actual footage, the actual coverage of Glenn Greenwald, uh, Laura, I don't remember how to say her last name. Uh, point. I, I can't remember her last name. I'm sorry. And uh, and of course Edward Snowden. And it's them as they broke this news. And you get to see their their real time reactions to here's the news breaking, and they're <clears throat> they're nervous. They're like, oh my gosh, like seriously, are we going to be drone struck where we are right now for making this public? Because we know that the the government only operates in our interest, and it's all about due process and you know following the rules, right? <laughs> right. Now, American officials said that Snowden's leaks put lives at risk, but in the eight years since then, they have never given any clear examples. Snowden says they constantly tell us this is for your safety and to investigate terrorists. Barack Obama's own investigations found it didn't stop a single terrorist attack. Now, at the time, the NSA did claim that mass surveillance stopped terrorism. Richard Leggett, former deputy director of the NSA, said NSA programs contributed to stopping 54 terrorist attacks. And so John Stossel told Snowden, well, that makes me feel safer when I hear that. But Snowden responded, well, we want to believe that's true, but it's not. The government itself no longer makes these claims that it stopped 54 plots. In fact, John Stossel says the government no longer claims it stopped any attacks. And he says, all of this made me realize Snowden got screwed. John Stossel asked him, are you pissed off? Former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper lied to Congress, and he wasn't fired. Now he works for CNN. Former NSA Director Keith Alexander wasn't fired. Now he's on Amazon's board. They made out. And he told Snowden, you're in exile. Snowden answered, if you're one of these made men, you face a very different flavor of justice. Meaning the system looks after its own. Snowden went to Hong Kong to give reporters the data that showed the NSA had lied. He asked 27 countries to grant him asylum without success. He tried to fly to Ecuador. When his plane stopped for a layover in Moscow, U.S. officials revoked his passport. So he's been stuck in Moscow for seven years now. If he returns to America, then Snowden will almost certainly be jailed. He says, I can be very much at peace with the choices that I've made. It was the right thing to do and it has made things better. Some of these programs have been halted. In 2013, Donald Trump was asked about Snowden. He said, this guy's a bad guy, and there's still a thing called execution. But this year, Trump said he'd, get, he'd look at giving Snowden a pardon. Snowden told Stossel, I think it's clearer and clearer that what I did was the right thing to do. History has a way of exonerating the truth. Sometimes, anyway. And he says, Snowden did a good thing. He deserves a pardon. Julian Assange deserves one too. I'll have a link to the article which I found on everythingvoluntary.com Look, I'm not telling you you have to agree but I'm betting that if most of what you know about Edward Snowden has come through mass media sources you've probably only been given part of the story. And the idea by the way I think it was just last week actually Another federal court found that the programs that, uh, that Snowden revealed were, in fact, illegal. I don't have it here in front of me. I'll have to see if I can find it. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But, you know, better late than never, little vindication for Edward Snowden. And for those who say, well, but our, our national security is, is more important than this one guy... I'm just going to ask you to remember what what you call national security, what you think is aimed at preventing enemies from abroad from coming and, you know, subjugating the American people is instead aimed at the American people. It's aimed directly at you and me because for some reason our government views us as the enemy. So, you know, maybe, maybe we should pay closer attention to the person with their arm around us who's saying, hey, hey, I got this. I'm just here to look after you. I'm just trying to protect you. When in fact, what they're, fact, what they're trying to do is fit us for a straitjacket. They lied. Just if you remember nothing else, they lied. And that should tell you all you need to know about uh, how far you should be able to trust their assurances that but we would never misuse this information that we're gathering on you. Yeah, come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Moving on. I think one of the saddest indicators of whiny, woke self-indulgence can be seen in this dogmatic insistence that everything that came before us was wrong or racist. It's funny. I posted an article the other day uh, from uh, Paul Weston who was a, a Brit giving an assessment of what he sees as, you know, the, the anger that is driving the protests against the 2020 election here in America. And I'll grant you, there are some people out there who are, you know, just they're Trumpers and Trump is their guy, and they're kind of caught up in that cult of personality. But what Weston points out, and this is the part that really alarms some, is that a lot of the people who are, are angry and rightly angry aren't just doing political posturing. They're angry because they are recognizing clearly that their system of governance is being turned against them and their only avenue of peacefully affecting change is being taken away through fraud and through the manipulation of election data. And here's the telltale sign, you know, in pointing this out, uh, you know, some of the the newly woke come along. and, And what do they say? Do they do they counter this? Well, they do a lot of name-calling, but, but among their favorites, are they start applying the labels of, well, you're just angry because you're a white supremacist. <laughs> Everything is white supremacy. Everything I disagree with is racist. So I guess it's not surprising that uh, such individuals laboring under these, uh, these delusions that uh, it's all a big white supremacist conspiracy would set their sights on Christmas. In, in particular, white christmas the film white christmas we're going to talk about how it's a triggering event rather than a holiday favorite for some folks and offer a defense of some of these holiday
0: classics before they too are banned this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. So let's talk about uh, White Christmas and how, <laughs> how much, much of what we have taken for granted as holiday favorites is being designated as a triggering and inappropriate and some kind of a microaggression or maybe even a macroaggression by the woke among us. You know, it's it, outright political tyranny is one thing, but uh, the so, social justice tyranny, I think, is the absolute worst because it comes with this passionate intensity that uh, I, I think the Jacobins of the French Revolution must have felt. That's certainly, we are so right that it is absolutely our prerogative to go around chopping off people's heads and destroying lives because we're just that good. Yeah. And, and, of course, they ended up devouring themselves, which there's some poetic justice there, but they still ruined a lot of innocent lives as well. Let's hope that uh, our own social justice warriors don't, don't get that kind of a head of steam built up. The thing that is so amazing is when it comes to conforming or, or, or coercing conformity out of people, there is no price too high to be paid. What was the tweet I saw this morning? Oh, it was, uh, it was, I think it was Jeffrey Tucker who noted, uh, if you, in case you hadn't heard, I think Andrew Cuomo had banned sale of Confederate flags in New York. Well, uh, finally, someone is striking a blow and, and eliminating hatred from our society. And, you know, all we had to do was just eliminate free speech. No Confederate flags available in New York. And Jeffrey Tucker says, hey, New York City might be a windswept post-apocalyptic ghost town, a shadow of its former glory, smashed in less than a year by executive edicts. But at least there will be no Confederate flags there. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, pretty short-sighted stuff. But, hey, those uh, social justice blinders fit pretty tight, apparently. LQ Cincinnatus, in a blog post on Letters from Flyover Country talks about in this climate of accelerating intolerance for any cultural expression that predates this morning's ethical pinnacle of woke self-indulgence, progressive catechisms have never rung more hollow. He says the preposterous self-importance that recently witnessed adults debating whether or not the vintage holiday song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, constituted an ode to rape. And in that very summer that witnessed Amazon pull Gone with the Wind before Atlanta being unironically burned to the ground by America's extra chromosome left, is it silly to anticipate a comparable cancellation of a far more prominent icon of traditional America, the entire memeplex around the perennial bugaboo, White Christmas? Now, he says, I won't rehearse the entire woke antipathy to Irving Berlin's song, first popularized in Paramount's Holiday Inn of 1942 and immortalized by Bing Crosby's Homie baritone and moody, scooping diphthongs. It's entirely possible that an infinitesimal minority of of Americans born between 1885 and 1995 would find themselves unable to sing a few bars from memory. As the world's best-selling single in the age of mechanically reproducible music, until Elton John's 1997 remake of Candle in the Wind in honor of the late Princess Di, which marked the significant transition to digital reproduction, It was an incredibly simple, just 54 words, 67-note song. And while there's an interesting backstory to the various recordings in circulation, LQ Cincinnati says, I was delighted to have my hunch confirmed that the set for Holiday Inn was reused for 1954's White Christmas. Now, the real question I need answered is whether or not it was also used for Christmas in Connecticut. But he says the lightning rod for the rebarbative left is, as always, a semantic issue, not an empirical one. In this one is reminded of Richard Weaver's argument about the tragedy of the nominalist takeover of post-medieval culture in Ideas Have Consequences, published in 1948. That words can trigger the psychologically frail reminds us of the sturdy folk wisdom we all grew up with, sticks and stones... The absence of this simple lesson alone probably accounts for more psychiatric prescriptions in this century than any other fact of life. Today, silence is violence, but violence is, well, it's censored, unless it fits the narrative. White, do we need to go any further? And Christmas? He says, I mean, really, can there be another three syllables that so elegantly compress the entire Christo-fascist program into one hard gemstone of pure, lustrous hatred? He says, while it's not difficult to design experiments to reveal the reasoning processes of lab animals and house pets, this is not the case for progressives and socialists. In the animal kingdom, at least, these efforts are largely successful because the structure of inferential logic circuits in the cortices of most mammals exhibit a stable anatomical structure and clearly differentiated, if nested, functional operations that are repeatable and reproducible. But this is not the case for human beings who've had these logic circuits recoded by emotional noise, deactivating both simple calculation as well as higher forms of disinterested reason. The recoding is indoctrination. The emotional noise is the learned magnification of effective inputs. So what goes under the rubric of education in the United States is actually a form of intentional distortion of our innate capacity for empathy and detached deliberative ratiocination. Students acquire this intentional disability in order to consider themselves educated. It's a sick and twisted tale that goes back to the creation of the Prussian educational system in the wake of the humiliation wrought by Napoleon's swift subjugation and Horace Mann's importation of this system to our country in the 1840s. He says missing from this emotion drenched approach to the world and human culture is the capacity to grasp actual shared historical facts. Anything that informs the mindset beyond the creation behind the creation of any artifact, especially one that strikes a chord with millions of people across three or four generations, is regarded as counterproductive to raised consciousness. And while this isn't the place for a fully developed, sympathetic analysis of the symbolism of the entire white Christmas phenomena from the 1942 single, its recording in Holiday Inn, and its regeneration in the blockbuster film I think one can make reasonable statements about the lyrics, script, and 1954 staging that would probably align with the tacit assumptions and values of the national audience from this period, 1942 to 1954. He says, The rough prototype for my analysis is Stefan Zweig's autobiographical epiphany that he had lived in three worlds, the world prior to the Great War, the world that followed in its wake, and the emergence of modern barbarisms of national and international socialism that prepared the second global confrontation of his life conflagration rather of his lifetime. His tragic suicide was his decision to avoid that third world and the fourth world it would create. LQ Cincinnati says My belief is that White Christmas does not simply invoke nostalgia for one's youth and the rose colored memories of long lost relatives celebrating the birth of our Savior. The film is actually a testimony to the good natured resilience of the pre Great War world, where the values of humility, honesty, hard work, and thrift were not lifestyle choices, but survival strategies. Like Remember the Night, another Christmas classic from Hollywood's Golden Age, the values of the protagonist's parents were pitted against their own pressing personal appetites and the relentless anonymous social forces of the situation in which they found themselves. In that case, the justice system... But in both cases, the wisdom of the parents' generation wins out, and White Christmas is a hymn to that victory. He says, I think the first safe assumption is that White Christmas's chronological meridian, if you will, might be the year 1903. That was the year of Bing Crosby's birth. Crosby, whose voice provides the physical embodiment of the sentiments and affections evoked in the lyrics and score, would have had his deepest, most profound childhood experiences prior to his adolescence, and the transformation of the country and the world in the events of World War I. He says, Zwig has a memorable passage describing how in 1941, when visitors to the cinema are shown, men and women from the year 1900, they break out into uncontrollable laughter. The norms of Zwig's entitled youth had become historical and incomprehensible for the next generation, and that became the filter for Berlin, for Crosby, and for Michael Curtis. This was a world before automobiles were even a novelty in most parts of the country, and a world where few people had indoor plumbing, to say nothing of electrical service. There were only 45 states at the time, and the chances are that your grandparents' generation had a few Civil War veterans on one side or the other. When Crosby was a small boy, if his parents wanted coffee, they first had to make a fire, and when anything was delivered, it was probably taken off a horse-drawn wagon. He and his cohort would not have had vivid memories of the Great War beyond echoes in popular culture. The dark theaters where silent films replaced the wholesome analog experience of vaudeville was making entertainment into a mass commodity. Cars, phones, and radios went from being luxuries to being ubiquitous commodities during the 1920s. I'm loving this commentary from LQ Cincinnati. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. I sincerely hope that you're not feeling any pressure to, uh, you know, self-censor or otherwise limit some of the Christmas traditions. And I will proudly tell you, my mother loves white Christmas. She loves holiday and she loves Bing Crosby. I mean, we grew up with his Christmas album playing every single year. This is just one more of the things I will not surrender to the woke among us. Try as they might.
0: this is the Brian Hyde show this is the Brian Hyde show okay hey, once again welcome back to the show.
1: I would encourage you please <clears throat> check out my show notes at the subscribe to the podcast share the love tell your friends and neighbors. And uh, thanks again for being part of my audience. I'm sharing a commentary from LQ Cincinnati. This is in a blog called Letters from Flyover Country. And it's still dreaming of a white Christmas because, believe it or not, the woke among us are just chomping at the bit to do away with this, uh, this ode to white supremacy. Starring Bing Crosby. <laughs> uh, I know it sounds ridiculous, and yet uh, there are people out there who are triggered by this kind of stuff. And LQ Cincinnati says all of this cultural, economic, and technological churn has come to to be the norm. Standing still amidst all the change becomes the balancing act that, uh, for instance, enabled Ben Crosby's generation to adapt first to roadways without paving, let alone traffic lights, and to the enormous wealth accumulation, which would certainly have concerned their elders. Now, he says these themes form the plot lines of several Hollywood productions, Make Way for Tomorrow, back in 1937. It's a wrenching exploration of the intergenerational moral friction between 19th century parents and their 20th century offspring that in many ways offers a handy reference to 20th century parents and their 21st century children. White Christmas filters these frictions through the lenses of loyalty and patriotism. The forms of expression may be novel, but we see them through an allegiance to the sources of pre-modern inspiration. And unlike the Austrian writer Zwig with his livid steeds of the apocalypse, Americans were quick to salvage what we could from the past, pragmatically repurposing it for artistic inspiration. Entire production numbers leverage our usable past and make it into a springboard into into contemporary expression. Choreography mocks modern European abstract dancing in favor of good old-fashioned on-stage hoofing. Minstrel show is a post-blackface homage to the artistry of African-American folk music and the roots of jazz. With the exception of the seductive Mandy most all the numbers rely on stock American pop culture topoi to, to, to make a connection to the audience. The working assumption is that we all share a broad river of cultural expression. We all add to it and Hollywood's just one funnel through which it is fed back out for refiltration with new twists here and there but with an intact mortal, moral core rather. Indeed, he says, the script of White Christmas and other holiday classics from this generation holds fast to the moral wisdom of its elders' generations. We did not twice host the scorched earth of post war Europe and can be excused for seeing our past with less anger. In the 1950s, as Europe was rebuilding, according to the moral strictures of Le Corbusier and Bauhaus, we were rebuilding, or we were building rather, split level neo colonials and driving pink convertibles. He says, the white of White Christmas is the symbolic purity of a world energy uncorrupted by socialism, by world war, mass death, famine, genocide, fiat money, forced labor, and conscription. It was a world in which people daily toiled, adjusted their lives to the output of that toil, and understood the moral balance which within would be reckoned with the balance without, regardless of one's faith. And he says, one of the great losses we've suffered in the corrosive onslaught of our American culture by the cultural Marxists, the progressives, and today's cognitive and morally impaired left is the outright destruction of middle-brow culture. America's middle-brow taste offered access to the imagery and energy of high culture without the time and mental demands. As a trade-off, it conveyed a thumbnail sketch of the enduring themes of highbrow culture, of permanence, continuity, and moral comfort. But this was seen by the warlocks of the Frankfurt School, which, of course, is the source of political correctness, as kitsch, non- or sub-art, unworthy of an adult. And LQ uh, Cincinnati says, I think one of the things we see today in the wake of 2016 and 2020 is that there are tens of millions of people who want that access to those noble themes even though they may simply not have the time and bandwidth for the full message. And thanks to the frauds and firebrands described by the late Roger Scruton, we've done away with the middle-brow culture altogether. Because high-brow culture will not scale, we're left with efforts that constantly refresh the low-brow with ever-lower, more depraved sources of human experience. We're denied schlock because it is kitsch, but are forced to ingest filth in its stead. So, if there's a silver lining to a whiteness theme, it's that the whiteness of White Christmas, the glow of pure motives, loving families, of true hope in the payoff of genuine effort, is something that can be shared by everyone willing to put in the time and the effort. And if anything else has been made clear in the last four years, it's up to us to demand and to supply the culture we deserve. Guy's a wordsmith, wouldn't you say? I want to shift gears here for a moment. Talk a little bit about the joy of Christmas. Annie Holmquist is one of my favorite writers from intellectualtakeout.org. She talks about bringing joy to a weary world and says, I caught a glimpse of a friend's Christmas decorations the other day while looking at social media. Positioned over the fireplace was the phrase, the weary world rejoices. Now this reference to to a weary world taken from the famous Christmas carol, O Holy Night, seems a fitting description of this year. Our world and those who inhabit it are worn down by sickness, lockdowns, elections, and unrest. We just want it all to be over so we can get back to our normal lives. Unfortunately, normality appears unlikely to reappear anytime soon. Particularly as Joe Biden threatens to start his administration with a national 100-day mask mandate. Yet despite this and other gloomy prospects, the phrase, "A a weary world rejoices, brings great relief and peace providing a perfect backdrop to this present season of Advent. She says, contrary to the typical merriment we associate with Christmas, Advent is intended to be a time of fasting and mourning. The celebration of Advent, Lutheran pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. And that's exactly the posture reflected in the previously mentioned carol, O Holy Night, as it speaks of Christ's birth in the little Jewish town of Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. That birth brought hope of a new and glorious morn in which weary, sin-sick souls could feel their worth. As the carol goes on to proclaim, the king of kings who was laid in lowly manger is a friend in trials who knows our need and understands our weakness. He breaks the chains of the slave and ends oppression. And she says, thinking about this song led me to ponder other carols. Many of those we know and love are full of joy and merriment, but they also represent the sadness and despair that such joy seeks to dispel. Joy to the world, for example, recognizes that sin and sorrow abound upon the earth. God rest you, merry gentlemen, commands us not to be dismayed. And probably the chief of all doom and gloom carols is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, a song birthed by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow amidst the difficulties of the Civil War. Longfellow wrote, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, thankfully, another stanza follows, proclaiming that God is not dead, nor doth he sleep, assuring us the wrong shall fail, the right prevail. And this assurance comes because God himself became flesh at Christmas time. She says, so often we treat Christmas as a dazzling display. Part of our gloom this particular year has to do with the fact that we can't have that dazzling display of activities and celebrations. For so many heavy burdens overshadow this season. But she says, we we know why we have Christmas. The babe in the manger was God himself who knew just how full of pain and suffering this world is. And his coming was meant to quietly bring healing and joy to heavy hearts. Annie Holmquist says, I've often overlooked the pain and despair spelled out in many beloved carols, but she says, this year, that's changing, for suddenly it is more relatable for all of us. Yet, even as we recognize that pain and suffering, those of us in this weary world can rejoice in the hope and healing brought by the arrival of God incarnate so many Christmases ago. I'm going to have a link to to her essay in the show notes. And I like that she's, she's pointing to these Christmas carols. I had read a story the other day about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and um, I heard the bells on Christmas Day and it offered a much more complete story. His wife had, uh, I think his second wife had just died just a couple years prior. Her dress caught fire because, you know, you heated your home with open, with open fires in those days. Um, he had a son who had been shot uh, at one of the battles in the Civil War. And you think about the, the despair that people were feeling at that time. That was 1863. Yeah, it was not a very pleasant time for a lot of folks. And I love Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. What what an amazing wordsmith. But it all comes back to there is reason to hope. And so whatever challenges you and I are facing right now at this moment in 2020, and they're real. They're absolutely real. And likely very difficult to bear. Let's not forget there's hope. Find some solace in the the Christmas songs, in the real message behind the season, in the joy of giving, serving, selflessness. I promise you it's still there. Choose not to let it be overshadowed by lesser concerns, particularly the political ones.